New York City is constantly evolving, but there are some institutions here that have stood the test of time. This year marks the 100th anniversary of at least three of them. Grand Central Terminal, the Woolworth Building in Lower Manhattan, and El Diario, the nation's longest publishing Spanish-language daily newspaper. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're delving into the history and impact of all three of these New York City staples, starting with Grand Central Terminal. Thousands of people pass through Grand Central every day, tourists and commuters alike. Whether you're stopping to look around or you're running for a train, there are secrets to the 100-year-old building that few people know. John Bell and Maxine R. Layton learned some of those secrets when they worked on the restoration of Grand Central in the 1990s. They also collaborated on a new book called Grand Central, Gateway to a Million Lives. John is a founding partner of the architectural firm Bayer Blinder Bell. John, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. And Maxine is with Parsons Brinkerhoff Incorporated and the author of the children's book, An Ellis Island Christmas. Maxine, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Grand Central Terminal turned 100 years old this month. John, let me start with you. Why is this milestone worth celebrating? Well, I think it was a tremendous leap in advance on the whole method of transportation in the 19th century. That was certainly one of the most important reasons. And But I think also there's another reason, which is that slowly but surely we're seeing a renaissance of public transportation again. And I think this wonderful building offers so many lessons to be learned that it's good to celebrate its, uh, its anniversary in a very visible way. Maxine, as we mark this milestone, what comes to mind for you when you think about Grand Central and its importance? Grand Central, I always think of it as a a space that's a truly democratic space. Uh, it embraces all people. You don't have to have a certain amount of money in your pocket in order to walk through this building to experience its grandeur. It's a place that's fluid and has just as filled with joie de vivre. And that's been the case throughout its history, yes, right? Yes, it has. It has. I mean, it's this Grand Central Terminal is the third Grand Central. It started off as the depot, then the station. And today we see the terminal that basically changed the face of New York as we knew it then, before John and I were born, of course. But uh, <laughs> that was 100 years ago. <laughs> but it changed the face of New York. Don't you think, John? Oh, no doubt about it. It changed it in a very short period of time. In less than a quarter of a century, three stations, each one technically surpassing the uh, the one before it, uh, were built on this site. It was a remarkable piece of history of engineering and movement. Prior to the construction of Grand Central, the trains were all above ground, yes, right? Yes, because of, it was prior were, to electrification. Yes. And with the shift from steam to electrification, William J. Wilgus, who had worked for the railroad, came up with a plan that by using electrification, you could build a terminal that was several levels below ground, and everything above ground became, as Wilgus called it, air rights. And so it became the real estate that we know it as. That was really, I think, probably, John, the birth of the real estate movement. I think it was really a time when 
science, technology, engineering were very much in working as of one, as it were. And that's something which one hopes will begin again. And who was Wilgus specifically to the Will- construction of Grand Central? William Wilgus was the chief engineer for the railroad. One of the things about Wilgus is that he was a civil engineer, and because of all the planning that he did for the railroad, the great architecture we see today were all made possible because the vision of this man as a civil engineer, he could envision what was below as well as what was above. I understand it was a disastrous train accident in 1902. Am I right? Is that when this all sparked the movement to build Grand Central and put the trains underground? Yes. Yes. It was a tragic accident through the failure of the technology of the time not being able to control the climate of the time. It was an early morning rush hour train coming into uh, New York uh, as they regularly did. And as it went into the tunnel in the high in the 96th Street, it was completely engulfed by uh, steam and and fog to the point where there was a collision between two trains with a massive amount of um, casualties. And that tipped the balance, as it were, in favor of funding new technology, electric um, methods of movement, and uh, getting rid of the old and dangerous uh, methods of moving around. How long did it take to build Grand Central Terminal, the Grand Central Terminal we know today? Oh, Grand Central, the one we know today, started being built in 1904 and was built it by, completed by 1914. 1913. 1913. And it took longer to restore the building than it actually did to build the building. One of the amazing things about um, the way in which the building was built, the way the construction was phased, is that Grand Central Station was still open. These trains never stopped. So we often talk about in this day and age how we're going to phase construction in a busy New York City street. Well, this was phasing construction in an area where the trains were still coming in and out and people were using them while the the terminal we see today was being built. What impact did Grand Central have on Midtown Manhattan? I would imagine Midtown would not be what it is today if it weren't for the construction of Grand Central. The impact is really all of the high-rise development that proceeded after Grand Central was built and built over and using a concept called air rights where the space above the railroad lines and terminal itself was made available as a series of real estate construction sites. Grand Central today is only around because people fought to preserve it. They actually wanted to knock it down at one point and build a 108-story office building on top of that site, right? Yes, Yes, they did. How hard of a fight was it to save Grand Central from demolition? Oh, it only took 10 years. Only took 10 years, huh? (laughs) Well, there was a grassroots movement and a legal battle uh, that fortunately saved the building. And Jackie Kennedy, along with people like uh, Brendan Gill and the Municipal Arts Society, really led the grassroots fight. This went all the way to the Supreme Court, didn't it, this fight? It did. You could roughly say that the 70s, 1970s, were occupied with saving Grand Central, which included 
uh, the legal fight. The 80s, 1980s, were um, focusing on the design and the development of Grand Central, and that was the beginning of uh, our work for planning for all the plans and the designs that we developed for the terminal. And the final period, which was just about finished 10 years ago, was the, was the actual construction of those improvements. So you've got, you've got this march of progress, three decades long, which really you, everybody today experiences as one, as, as one trend, but actually it was much more than that. Grand Central Terminal fell into disrepair in the latter part of the 20th century. That's where your company came in, right, John, and did all this great work. What led to that state of disrepair for Grand Central? After this big fight to save it, why did it fall into disrepair over time? The city was broke. I mean, the city was broke, and train travel uh, starting in the 50s with the advent of the automobile and Eisenhower and the plans for the highway development, uh, train travel was less glamorous and uh, people wanted to take to the highways in their cars. How painstaking was it to rehabilitate Grand Central? I wouldn't call it pain. It was difficult, but for those of us who were involved, it was such a wonderful thing to be doing. I don't think we thought of it as pain, or perhaps we were just too dumb not to see that it was pain. But it was done very, very carefully and with great care. One part in the construction, we had to find some information about a particular staircase, which was never built. There was a plan to put a stair from the main concourse on the east end of uh, the concourse up to a new balcony level. We knew we had to find evidence to show that a, a, a portion of that idea could be developed um, and illustrate a new way of 20th century living. And we did that in the end by searching through thousands of drawings that were stored in the plan room of the railroad up above the the concourse itself and diligently searching through those drawings to find the drawings that would help us make the case that they had always originally intended to be a staircase in that location. Wow. Wow. A little bit of detective work. So, Maxine, you were with Bayer Blender Bell at the time? Yes, I was. Yes. How exciting of a project was this for you? Um, It was incredibly exciting, actually. I had also worked with John on, um, on... during the restoration of Ellis Island. So um, I really developed a real love and passion for um, for these urban and historic buildings. And it was very exciting. I think also one of the very exciting things was watching the scaffolding going up across the main concourse as the sky ceiling was being cleaned. Restored, yes. Yeah, and it, it was like watching a, peach, a piece of sculpture moving incrementally. And I always thought it was such a, a, a really a brilliant idea um, that John and his team had, which was to leave a small patch of the building, uh, of the ceiling that was not clean, so that people could look up and remember what it had been, because the, the, the building, the, the ceiling is so filled with light and color, but for so many years it had become so dark and smoke-stained, tobacco-stained, actually. Yes. 
So Grand Central remained opened as it did when it was initially being constructed during this renovation, too, huh? That tireless yeah, building yeah. never shut its eyes. <laughs> in the best of times and the worst of times, exactly. eyes wide open, always moving. Trains just never stop running. That's right. Grand Central today is home to a number of shops and eateries. Has that always been the case? Oh, yes. Even back to its earliest time? Yep. Yes, it's always a, that one of the, one of the great attractions of Grand Central was it 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 was such a, a a flexible and large space that many different people types of businesses could do business in it. So it was it was a very appealing location, and there are many there are a number of stories about people who used that location to start careers in in uh, affiliated fields like art galleries. Um, movie theaters, barbershops, movie theaters. There was a movie, movie theater. theater we, yes, yes, it was the, th- the the ceiling of the movie theater still exists in part, uh, just off the corner of the main concourse. Really, where was yeah. the movie theater in Grand it Central? In, it was in on the north. East corner of the main concourse. And then there was the famous Campbell apartment. Oh, yes. That, uh, I only recently discovered the Campbell apartment by <laughs> accident, actually, after all of well, these years. that was a happy accident. Tell me about it. <laughs> Grand <laughs> Central is just full of mysteries, isn't it? Mysteries yes. waiting to be unlocked. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's... Well, the- restoration, preservation as a field has a fairly significant... A need for people with talent who who are good at detective work. Maxine, what that was uncovered in Grand Central surprised you most? I didn't know this until I got involved with the with the restoration about the spiral staircase that is in the information booth that in goes the, in the center of the, yes that goes down below. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, John? Well, for me, thinking about it, uh, one of the fascinating stories and physical evidence of that story was the discovery that there was a railroad line that was constructed to lead a train directly to the basement underbelly of the Waldorf Astoria. Yes. And it was built deliberately so President Roosevelt could unload discreetly um, into the Waldorf Hotel without to, without having to go into any of the public spaces mm-hmm. in Grand Central. He didn't want to show people he was in a wheelchair at the right. time. Uh, yes. Exactly. I thought that was a very sophisticated piece of planning. Do you, each of you have a favorite place in Grand Central to uh, watch, to sit, to reflect, any of that? The main concourse is a great piece of architecture. And the decorative finishes in the main concourse ceiling. It's a wonderful piece of urban art. So they're always on my list. I would say it would be the main concourse, but the main concourse very early in the morning, at like yes. 6.30 in the morning. The building speaks to you. I mean, I, I would say this this building yeah. really spoke to both of us, and, um, and the book was really a labor of love. Uh, it was really something we felt very strongly about, and it was... It was a great story to tell. Grand Central, Gateway to a Million Lives. Maxine, thanks so much. You're welcome. John, thank you. Thank you. 
John Bell and Maxine R. Layton are the authors of Grand Central, Gateway to a Million Lives. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boraki. This morning, we're celebrating the centennials of three New York City institutions, Grand Central, the Woolworth Building in Lower Manhattan, and the Spanish-language newspaper El Diario. When it was built, the Woolworth Building was the tallest skyscraper in the world. Gail Fenske is an architecture historian and professor at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. She's the author of The Skyscraper and the City, The Woolworth Building and the Making of Modern New York. Gail, thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Why is the 100th anniversary of the Woolworth Building worth celebrating? It was, when it was completed, a a major uh, architectural contribution to the city. It was hailed by critics. It's a great work of architecture. Um, But beyond that, it was exciting for uh, many people at the time because it was just such a large-scale project. It was the tallest skyscraper in the world, uh, 792 feet. And this was a time when um, great works of engineering uh, were exciting for many people, Uh, big bridges, tunnels, you know, the newest skyscraper, Uh, there's a great amount of excitement around this because a lot of innovation was taking place in the building industry at this time. So since it was just so large and so tall, uh, it was was a a major, major project and very visible in the city. And and on top of that, hailed by critics for its very, very fine architecture. And it still has its appreciators today. Now, I am old enough to remember five-and-dime stores, but there is a whole generation not old enough to remember. So for those people not familiar with Woolworths, which is also the five-and-dime, who was the man behind this building? Uh, the man was Frank W. Woolworth, a uh, very, very interesting uh, character. He was a retailer, was interested in retailing uh, from a very early age, a bit envious of the department store retailers, but this idea of the five and ten cent store was really his own idea, and he really uh, made it into a big thing. Uh, by the time that he decided to build his headquarters, which the Woolworth Building was his headquarters, he owned over 300 stores, and shortly after that, Within a year of starting the construction of the Woolworth Building, he had uh, merged his stores with several other chains to create an empire of stores. He had stores in England as well as the U.S. And so he had a very vast uh, chain of these these five and ten cent stores. And I I want to add something here with regard to those stores, and that is that those stores sold – commodities that were imported from Europe and the craftsmanship of those commodities was really key, was very important to Woolworth, so that they be well-crafted small things that people could buy for five or ten cents was, was his idea. I understand that he financed his headquarters, the Woolworth Building, in cash. Very unusual for a New York City skyscraper, I would imagine. Uh, very unusual. Um, from from what I have been told repeatedly, uh, people take out mortgages. They have been doing this for a long time. He was very wealthy. He was able to actually to, to actually finance it himself. He was able to do that. He was always though looking uh, for the most uh, financially uh, savvy way to to do things. And uh, what he did is he joined with his bank. Uh, the bank had actually financed the expansion of his enterprise. It was the Irving National Exchange Bank, and they formed a corporation called the Broadway Park Place corporation to build the building, but Woolworth eventually bought back all the shares in the corporation uh, shortly after it was completed, and he owned the skyscraper outright uh, until he died in 1919, of course, and then it stayed in his family until 1923 when it went to the F.W. Woolworth Corporation. How is the building used today? 
it currently is um, used as offices. The, the base of the building, there's a large block, uh, about 28 stories that forms the base of the building, and then out of that rises a tower. Uh, right now, the tower is under construction as uh, very fine rental units. I don't know, and I don't think the owners know exactly what those are going to look like, but they will be very fine. Um, and actually, I, I said rental. I think they're going to be for sale, and they uh, will just be residential units, lovely places to, to live with a lot of light, uh, the floor-to-floor height uh, in that tower and the spaces in that tower, there's a very high floor-to-floor dimension, so the spaces are very voluminous and tall and light-filled, uh, so it should be a very exciting place to live. What does the lobby of the Woolworth look like? The lobby is spectacular, and it was intended to be spectacular. And uh, one of the finest uh, aspects of the building today is that that lobby is virtually intact, just as uh, it was built in 1913, uh, in a in a good state of preservation. Um, sparkling Byzantine mosaics, um, gilded tracery, marble from Skyros, monumental in scale, uh, echoes a Romanesque cathedral nave. Um, it has that kind of quality to it. Beautiful colors, golds and a little bit of reds, hints of red and blue in the mosaics. It's just o- overwhelming when you see it. And that was uh, Woolworth's intention. The Woolworth officially opened on April 24, 1913. What kind of fanfare, if any, surrounded that opening? It was major. Uh, and this is because Woolworth, Frank Woolworth, had a sense of showmanship. Um, he knew that people were enticed by visually beautiful things. He had a sense for how to show things and how to create around objects that that people were intrigued by, a a sense of spectacle. And so the opening was uh, a a flash of of light. And what I I mean is uh, it it was even more than that. All the lights of the interior lit up all at once. And as part of it... um, President Woodrow Wilson uh, was involved. He was actually the person who activated uh, the dynamos that turned on the lights, uh, theoretically anyway, from a button in Washington, D.C. And so uh, he, and it might have just been a ceremonial thing, but nonetheless, he hit this button, the lights turned on, and there was this bright, dazzling flash of light uh, just after nightfall. And uh, people were watching it from City Hall Park. Contemporary stories note that thousands of people were watching uh, this opening, the Wool- and also across across the Hudson River. The Woolworth Building was surpassed in height by the Chrysler Building in 1930. Do you know if that was a big disappointment to Woolworth and the family? I don't know anything in particular about it being being a disappointment, at least on the part of Gilbert or even the, the, the Woolworth family. The Woolworth Building, even with the Chrysler and Empire State, was still... Uh, a major skyscraper. It was open to tourism. It had an observatory at the top uh, up until uh, World War II, till 1941. And uh, it was just, in people's minds, it, I, I, certainly through the 20s, it was it, the equivalent of the Empire State. Are you involved, Gail, with any special 100th anniversary events here in the city? Uh, Yes, I am. I'm a co-curator with Carol Willis at the Skyscraper Museum of an exhibition uh, called Woolworth at 100. Uh, And uh, that is is a very interesting exhibition, I think, because there are a number of artifacts uh, related to the building, to the terracotta industry. Terracotta is a very important part of this building. Um, There are original drawings by Cass Gilbert, uh, blueprints, a a record of the construction, uh, a record of its significance within the city. Uh, So I, I think that'll be an interesting exhibition. How long does that exhibition run? Uh, It's through mid-July. Gail, thanks so much for your time.
You're welcome. Gail Fenske is a professor at Roger Williams University and the author of The Skyscraper and the City, The Woolworth Building and the Making of Modern New York. Though New York City is referred to as a concrete jungle, there is much more to it than cement and skyscrapers. Newspapers are an integral part of the city's history, and El Diario, a Spanish-language daily newspaper, is celebrating a 100 years as well. Erica Gonzalez is the executive managing editor of El Diario, Erica, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. How long have you been with El Diario now? I have been with El Diario six years. And how do you describe the paper to people not familiar with it? I tell people that it's a New York Latino paper that has um, is going on a 100-year history, and we are the go-to source for Hispanics um, at different stages of their experience in New York, from newcomers to people who've been here for generations, and we are we are the voice of Hispanics in New York and beyond. How did this paper originate? Well, it originated by uh, uh, the first owners were Spaniards, and it originated in 1913 in, uh, in New York City. And then decades later, it merged with uh, another new paper that came on the scene, El Diario, so it became El Diario La Prensa. And um, at, at the time, at 1913, there were probably about 14,000 Hispanics in New York City. Today, uh, the number, the population is at 2.3 million. And during that whole, those 10 decades, the, the paper's been documenting, chronicling the stories of this community, of the impact of Hispanics on the social, economic, and political landscape of New York City. So it, it's really a fascinating and priceless and unique documentation of, of this particular uh, population in New York City. Who would you say is your primary audience now when it comes to the Latino population? We have a cross-section of Hispanics. Um, we have a, a large Dominican readership. Um, it, it, it sort of mirrors the, where a community is at and how it's growing. So we have we basically cross the gamut when it comes to the the major Latino groups in New York City. And the way that we uh, approach it is we look at the issues that our readers are most concerned about and that they're most affected by. So, for example, a, a large number, vast majority of Hispanics in the five boroughs rent their apartments and they're typically concerned about issues that have to do with housing. So housing is a big issue for us. Education is another area. And those are, you know, no matter what country of origin you're from or whether you've been here for generations, those are typically high, high priority areas. How similar do you think the issues are today compared to what they were 100 years ago? A lot of them are still the same. A lot of the challenges, I think what's different is that the visibility um, of Latinos is much more prominent and that there have been all of these measures put in place um, that Hispanics have pushed for. So, for example, bilingual ed, uh, the, it being mandatory, was pushed by a number of Hispanic civil rights groups in the 1970s. And, you know, up until that point, it was, you know, it was sort of a... You know, there was no systematized way or mandatory way of providing education uh, coursework in Spanish to students. So that's something that's, that's changed over time. Uh, the issue of police abuse, where, you know, we have photos in our archives of, you know, basically cases that just never made it to the light of day to a newsroom, whereas 
I think today there's definitely more enforcement, more attention around that. So. Erica, does El Diario also tell the stories of what's happening back in folks' homeland in addition to bringing them the local information? We do have a, a, a what's called Paises, our country coverage, and we have a couple of correspondents abroad in, in Mexico and Dominican Republic who provide um, um, news reports directly from uh, those nations, and also we have special reports. So um, we do, that's something that our readers want to keep in touch, you know, keep on top of, you know. Our, a lot of our, our coverage is, is locally focused, however, because we find that people want to maintain, they want to stay informed on what's happening back home, but they're making their lives here, and they need to know how to navigate the city, and that's often the information they're looking for. How are you celebrating the 100th? Oh my God! A number of exciting celebrations we have. Um, we're going to run 26 weeks of special features starting in April. In April, we're also launching a microsite, a special microsite at eldiariony.com, where some of our archival photos will be on display, special video interviews, um, audio galleries, etc. So we're doing. It's going to be a full multimedia, multi-platform campaign, and we're celebrating the Corpus celebrations from April to October, and that includes a, quite a few partnerships from that with Columbia University and NYU to facilitate a, a, a photo exhibit um, to uh, special events with uh, young people. So it, it, there are going to be a number of citywide events where people can partake and be a part of the celebration. And what we're really emphasizing is that we can't tell the story alone. We encourage the public to tell us their El Diario stories. I mean, we count on them in this age of citizen journalism to really help tell the story of this paper. We can't do it alone. Erica, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Erica Gonzalez is the executive managing editor of El Diario, one of at least three New York City institutions turning 100 this year. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to senior producer, Morlene Chin, and producer, Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.